Hey everyone, it's us. Before getting to our regular episode, we want to take a moment to acknowledge these emotionally charged and devastating times for many Americans. The unwarranted and brutal murders of African Americans by predominantly white police officers cannot go unrecognized, and it is the responsibility of every American to stand in solidarity with the black community. Many people are working hard to educate themselves, reach out to others, get involved in activism, donate if possible, and beyond. We want to use this podcast as a platform to address the issues of racial equality, social justice, and inclusivity. Astronomy is not immune to racial injustice. To that end, we are working on a Beyond episode to parallel with the Astrobytes hashtag Black and Astro series, which we highly recommend taking a look at in the meantime. If you're more into listening, we recommend the podcast site Black Woman Collective, Code Switch, The Nod, and The Stoop to learn more about the complexities of race from the perspectives of Black Americans. We understand that long-term changes need to be made, both in our lives and in this podcast. We are working on efforts to feature more Black astronomers, discuss the experiences of Black scientists, and educate ourselves and others on how to be better allies. We wholeheartedly endorse the shutdown STEM strike for Black lives, which is being observed on Wednesday, June 10th, with a day off from research and other activities to focus on understanding racism, taking action, and acknowledging the injustices experienced by Black Americans. If you'd like to learn more, visit particlesforjustice.org. Be good to your fellow Americans, and remember that Black lives matter. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I am a second-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study planetary atmospheres. I'm Melana Rice. I'm a third-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study the interplay between planets and their environments. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study the interplay between supernovae and their host galaxies. (laughs) (laughs) Copycat. You're listening to episode 15, Minor Planets, Major Problems. And so in discussing this topic and when we were talking about the title of the episode, we had a little bit of uncertainty and back and forth about what exactly a minor planet is. Thankfully, there is an organization whose job it is to standardize these things. It's called the International Astronomical Union, and its primary purpose is semantics. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you laugh, but I'm dead serious. One of the IAU's primary goals is to name things such as stars and also uh, differentiate categories between things like planets and dwarf planets, which means Pluto is a dwarf planet. Sorry for all the listeners. (laughs) (laughs) So, Milena, what does the IAU define as a minor planet then? So a minor planet is anything in the solar system that orbits the sun, so... Anything that orbits the sun that specifically isn't a planet or a comet also. 
You didn't mention moons in there. Where do moons fall? Yeah, they don't orbit the sun directly. Mm. So it really has to be primarily orbiting the sun. Okay, so that's what makes Pluto a dwarf planet, but also a minor planet? Yeah, these categories are not distinct. There is quite a lot of overlap. So Pluto's a dwarf planet, a minor planet, also a trans-Neptunian object because it's beyond the orbit of Neptune primarily. Jeez. And if, if us throwing around these terms is a little bit too much to follow, we will link to a fun diagram. It's called an Euler diagram, and it shows the interplay between all these terms. So you can see how crazy complicated they are, but also they are well-defined, and there are objects that fit into one and not the other and some that overlap, so they do make sense in a kind of convoluted mm -hmm. manner. There's a reason for all the distinctions, even if the overlap is a little confusing. Absolutely. And one of the most confusing objects that people really don't know much about are called Trojans, which brings me to the asteroid that I'll be talking about today. It's called Letting the Trojans Out of the Horse. Trojan Asteroids Escape Their Orbits. This was written by Ali Crisp, and the paper that this summarizes is called Stability of Jovian Trojans and Their Collisional Families, which was written by Tim Holt and others. Last week, I had the distinct pleasure of chatting with Tim regarding this publication and his research. So let's take a listen. My name is Tim Holt. I am a PhD candidate from the University of Southern Queensland, though I'm currently located in Boulder, Colorado, USA, at the Southwest Research Institute. My interests are the dynamics and taxonomy of small solar system bodies. Instead of me telling you what a Trojan is, which I hinted to earlier, I will let Tim do that. The Trojans are basically two swarms of asteroids that are located at what's called Lagrange points. So they're 60 degrees ahead and behind the major, the major planet. Now, the most famous ones are the Jupiter Trojans, and they're named the Trojans because their objects were originally named after the heroes of the Trojan War in the Homer's Iliad. Uh, Earth itself and Mars also have Trojans as well as Uranus and Neptune, but the largest population is at Jupiter. And they stay there because 60 degrees ahead and behind the Jupiter is a very stable point. It's a, an equilateral triangle between, in gravitational terms between the Sun and Jupiter. And you said Earth has Trojans. We don't really hear about those very often, though. That's because we've only found two or three of them, really? and they're not very stable. Interesting. And you said Jupiter has the largest, most famous collection of Trojans that we know of. That's correct. Jupiter has the largest number. We know of about, depending on what you count as stability, we know of about 5,000 of them. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a asymmetry. There's nearly double the amount in the forward L4 swarm as there is in the rear L5 any guess as to why? Uh, if you do, there's a nature paper in it for you. <laughs> Fair enough. How are all these Trojans discovered? Is this direct imaging or were there other techniques involved? It's mainly direct imaging. Um, that's why we only know of a certain number of them. The population is complete to about 10 kilometers. And once uh, the Vera Rubin Observatory comes online, the project formerly known as LSST, mm -hmm. we're expecting to find a lot more, up to about a million. These are all unresolved, right? Not totally unresolved. The largest one, Hector, 
it has some, you know, there's a couple of pixels across. Okay. And we've and we've actually started to find things like moons around some of them. Hector has a moon, and recently Eurybides, which is the Lucy target, was found to have a moon as well. Yeah, I've heard about Lucy. I'm not sure I'm familiar with it. Lucy is a discovery class project that's going to be launching in hopefully next year, and will reach the tro reach. Uh, six Trojans, actually, from anywhere from 2025 through to 2033. Wow. It'll fly by six different Trojans, including Patroclus, which is a binary. Oh, wow. That's very exciting. Yes, it's an awesome project. We're going to find out a lot about the, the origins of these very, very interesting objects. One of the other astrobytes we're talking about in this episode is about binary asteroids. So that's something to, to, to think about. Did you guys know that the Lucy mission is as cool as it is? Yeah, Lucy is so crazy. It's supposed to have this like insane orbit to actually reach all six of those objects. If you look at the diagram, it's so cool. Yeah, I actually had heard very little about Lucy, so it's super interesting from an outsider's perspective. Mm. Me being the outsider, I'm not <laughs> I, I feel like I try to keep up to date on all the NASA missions, and yet there are all of these ones that totally slip through the cracks and I don't even realize until they're like launched and on their way to the target. I'm like, oh my God, they were doing this whole thing. We should really make some effort to talk about upcoming missions in a future episode. Yeah. I think that would be a fun thing to discuss. Yeah. Will, do you know Do you know why it's called the Lucy mission or Melina? Um, I think it's named Lucy after the skeleton, I want to say. Um I forgot why they named it after <laughs> Skeleton, but I, I'm pretty sure it is. Well, actually, Tim is going to tell you uh, <laughs> later in the interview. It okay. comes up. So let's keep listening. I was asking Tim about the collisional families that feature prominently in his paper. So collisional families are groups of asteroids that are identified in parameter space. And the theory basically goes that these are the results of catastrophic disruption. So when two asteroids hit or an asteroid gets broken up somehow, it produces a collisional family, so a family of associated mm. fragments. And these have been well documented in the inner main belt and main belt asteroids. There's a couple in the Hildas. It's actually Haumea, a family that they've identified out in the Kuiper belt as well. And the tricky thing with Trojans is that you can't just plug in their semi-major axis and get it get out the collisional family because these guys move on quite interesting dynamic orbits. It's actually called what's called a tadpole orbit. Basically they they move they change in their semi-major axis over 100 year time scales. Oh wow, that's that's quicker than I would have expected. Do the families ever uh, recoalesce into a larger object or do they stay kind of fragmented they stay fragmented generally so what excites you about the trojans why are they worth studying they're worth studying because these are literally and to use the tagline from lucy the fossils of solar system formation i like that yeah it's kind of cool isn't it and there's a really cool story with the lucy fossil and why why oh, lucy is called lucy. there it is okay yeah yeah so the lucy fossil is one of our ancestors mm -hmm. and is very important to the evolution to our understanding of human evolution and Hal Levinson decided to name the Lucy project after that because the 
Trojans are literally the fossils of solar system formation. Uh, if you follow the Nice model, these were captured during the inner, the early instability in the solar system, um, during which time Jupiter and Saturn bounce around a bit and fling the debris disk from the early solar system all over the place. And some of those are literally captured in those Lagrange points. Melina, there you have it. Your answer to why it's named Lucy. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. I, I think it's really a brilliant choice of mm. name, and it's a really cool mission. But yeah. I also wanted to, to pause the interview here because I think you know something about the Nice model. If you could just elaborate on that for a moment. Yeah, so the Nice model is it's basically the best current framework that we have for understanding how the solar system evolved early on and how all the planets and the minor planets got to the locations that they are today. And so there is a lot of evidence for why we think certain things have happened and why we think planets have moved in a certain way. Um, the Nice model just sort of encapsulates all of that evidence and tells you like a particular order that the giant planets go through resonances and capture different plant different uh, minor planet populations. So you're saying the model fits the data fairly nicely? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay. yeah, it actually is called the Nice model because it was developed in Nice, France, which is not the worst place to be doing astronomy. <laughs> really, really lovely. <laughs> uh, for those listening at home, our notes here only say include a pun. <laughs> So Alex really jumped on the fly with that one. That thank was good you, work. Thank you. <laughs> Not my finest hour, but... Uh... Should we get back to the interview? Yeah, keep us moving with the interview. I want to hear from Tim again. <laughs> yeah. So let's jump into your research. What, what were your techniques in studying the Jupiter Trojans? Okay. In this particular article, what we did is what's called N-body simulations. So this involves basically plugging the current locations of the Trojans into the, the code, then running the n-body code. So it, what it does is it calculates the gravitation interactions between the sun and the object, and then adds on four major gravitational objects in the solar system. So Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Basically, we don't care about the inner planets. They don't provide enough gravitational pull on these to warrant the extra computing time and run that forward for 4.5 uh, giga year. How long does it take to do each run? Okay, so each run on each CPU, because we use multiple CPUs on of this. Of course. Uh, so each run for each Trojan takes about a day. Okay. So being 5,000 Trojans, it takes 5,000 CPU days. So you could sit here and on your home computer and run it for, <laughs> you know, t t well beyond a PhD thesis, or you can grab a, a high-performance computer like we have at the University of Southern Queensland. So I generally, you tend to run this on about two or 300 CPUs, so it can take about a month or two. Still a very long time. I mean, if you make a mistake, it's, it's a problem. And speaking of which, I did make a mistake. Early on in my, I ran the first batch of simulations, I made a mistake in my code and had to run them again. So that's a bit of a pain. Yeah, but you learned quickly how to check on things. You learn very quickly to check your data. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And when you got your results, how did you know if they were real or not? I have very little experience with uh, running models, but when I have, I worry that maybe it's it's a good model, but it doesn't actually fit to reality. That's a million dollar question. To some extent, what you can do is trust the trust the model. Basically, other people have run using this simulation, uh, using this model system. It's called Rebound. The more people that run this simulation and verify the data on you can verify it, means you can trust this data more. Alex, I figured you might relate to uh, Tim's experience with modeling. Yeah, absolutely. Both the problem of making executive decisions on how many CPUs to use and for how long, and also starting a job that should take around a month and then coming back the next day and realizing that you made some typo in the path directory <laughs> directory path and then you have to rerun everything. So how do you actually make sure things will run correctly? Do you just run like a small version or are you even able to do that? It probably depends on the code, right? Yeah, at least in the case of uh, the simulations I was running, if it's going to fail, it's almost always going to fail within the first five minutes of the simulation. So you can at least run on a few cores for a small chunk of time. And if it's gotten past that chunk of time and hit the wall time, then you can set it up for a much larger simulation. Because it's generally all the tedious path problems mm -hmm. that you're going to run into in the first five minutes. Now let's go back to the interview and hear Tim discussing the major findings of his work. If you had to, to boil down the findings to two major topics, what would they be? The first one is that the Trojans are leaky. Basically, we found that there's about a 23-24%, depending on which, which swarm you're looking at, attrition of Trojans into, the, uh, into other solar system populations. So basically, these behave very much like uh, centaurs and other things and as other people have found that, that we should actually if we're looking at these other populations eventually find escaped trojans so you said you can see the trojans leak into other small body populations could it go in reverse i don't think you simulated that but is it possible um the short answer is no okay it, it basically things are moving too quickly to be able to be recaptured into the population that's why we're pretty confident that the Trojans are primordial populations. So what you start with is the max you'll ever get. Exactly. That's it. What, what you start with is the max you'll ever get. So that was the first major takeaway that Tim had for us. And the second major takeaway he was talking about is the collisional groups. And there's one group in particular that he was very excited to share about. But luckily for us, one of them, Eurobites, has... 218 members so we can start actually doing some statistics on that and what we find is that the escape rate of that family is increasing rather than decreasing so what we can do is do a linear fit to that take that back in time and estimate that the escapes started at around about a million years, uh, a billion years ago so what was happening then until a billion years ago basically that's when we think the collisional family occurred so there was a collision there was a collision back then that created the family about a billion years ago it's an estimation um, we've got 
you know, because of small numbers, small uh, body statistics, we have a rather large error bar on that. But it's still giving us an, an indication of when it happened. It didn't happen 4.5 billion years ago, and it didn't happen yesterday. What do you think the next steps are in this research? So taking this, basically what I'm looking at now is expanding the taxonomy of this. So taking this information from the escape rates and looking at other um, information like colors and from different surveys as well as their dynamical information, we can start to look at the, how the different Trojans are related to each other. And I presented some of the preliminary work on this at the recent DPS-EPSE meeting in Geneva. So that's where we'll stop the interview for today. But my conversation with Tim went far beyond just discussing his work. Uh, Tim has a very unusual journey through higher education that took him across the world and brought him to studying minor planets. It's sensational and unusual and deserves more time than we have in the one episode today. So do stay tuned for an upcoming Beyond episode where we'll feature the second half of that interview. And Alex, uh, I think it's your turn to talk about an Astrobi for today. Yeah, we're continuing the navigation through these different taxonomic, taxonomical classes. Is that a word? Yeah, why not? Taxonomy classes. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to, to be talking about a dwarf planet, minor planet, uh, Plutoid that we mentioned earlier, uh, but not a planet, and that is Pluto. The astrobite I'm going to be talking about is called the Beating Heart-Shaped Region of Pluto, and it's written by Caitlin Shin, based on a paper by Bertrand and others written in 2020, this year. And in the paper, the authors undertake an analysis of the atmospheric phenomena that may give rise to the different geological features that were seen in New Horizon images of Pluto during its closest approach in 2015. So... Just a little bit of background, the New Horizons mission was uh, done by NASA, and it took the highest resolution images ever taken of both Pluto and its largest moon, Charon. Oh boy, I think this is going to turn into another asteroseismology debate. But I gotta know, <laughs> is it Charon, 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 Chiron? Someone just tell me. Melina would probably know better than I would. I always called it Karen, but I think it's like either Karen or Sharon, or maybe both are acceptable. I actually looked this up because I was really unsure, and I think people sort of flip back and forth between those two. Okay. Yeah. But it's it's definitely not Karen. Yeah, it's not. Nothing with like a weird back of the throat thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> The paper that I'm going to be discussing focused on a particularly unexpected icy region on Pluto's surface called the Tombaugh Regio. Now, this region was named after Clyde Tombaugh, who originally discovered Pluto. And listeners have probably all seen the light, heart-shaped region toward the lower half of the widely publicized New Horizons images. Uh, now, the Tombaugh Regio is actually a two-mile-deep basin that's entirely filled with nitrogen ice. So, the left half of this Pluto heart, called Sputnik Planitia, is relatively free of craters, and this has led to an estimated age for the region of actually under 10 million years, which is surprising. Wow. Because what that might mean is that while Pluto is still too small to be called an official planet, it is or may be geologically active. Hmm. So, this is a big question mark, and there's another big question mark 
at what causes specific dark regions and some of those containing methane within Tombaugh Regio. People still don't know, and this is what the author is set to find out. So how would they study the Tombaugh Regio in more detail? Models. Models, models, models. Exactly. So they ran 3D global climate models that were developed at the Laboratoire de Météorologie <laughs> Dynamique. Okay, so I, I know that Pluto has like a very thin atmosphere, but it, it has its own climate system as well. It's about a millionth the atmosphere of Earth for reference. Hmm. Yeah, you really wouldn't expect it, but Pluto actually has both weather and winds, despite its very, very tenuous atmosphere compared to uh, the Earth. So what the authors found through their simulations is that the nitrogen ice contained within Sputnik Planitia heats up into vapor during the day and condenses back into ice at night. This is the so-called heartbeat of Pluto. Wow. And it it turns out that this process of heating and recooling sends nitrogen winds spiraling in a counterclockwise direction over Sputnik Planitia, and uh, this is the cause of westward winds around this region. Are these planetary winds, or are they locally concentrated vortices? This is a good, great question. This is another big finding of the research, is that the simulations suggest that these winds are the dominant mechanism behind circulation on the entire planet for most of the year. And it's also possible that these winds could blow material across the surface of the planet as well, including things like haze particles and methane. And this could potentially explain the dark regions near Tumbal Regio that we saw in the uh, New Horizons images. This is very, like, romantic in a way, where it's like, you know, Pluto's cold, icy heart, like these freezing winds blowing around. It's pretty insane. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is very poetic. <laughs> very poetic. <laughs> Uh, so what what's next for this research? Because New Horizons already passed, right? So what are they going to just continue analyzing that data or take new data? Yeah, it takes a lot of time to analyze the data from uh, past NASA missions and actually come up with hypotheses explaining them. One of the things that was found in the New Horizon images were unexplained methane structures, uh, icy methane, near the equatorial regions of Pluto. Mm. And so it's possible that these could be linked to forming from the heart's westward winds. Uh, and this would be a strong independent confirmation of this theory of the heartbeat, but we're not entirely sure yet what causes them. Yeah, to add to that, there are a number of open questions about the global atmosphere of Pluto, which include the fact that since we've started studying it a few decades ago, its atmosphere has increased like over 50%, and nobody hmm. knows why. Wow. And another piece of this that's somewhat interesting is, yes, New Horizons did fly by Pluto five years ago, but downlink from a spacecraft that far away actually takes years. So I don't. I think it's done now, but it took years for all the data from the flyby mm-hmm. to be sent to Earth. Uh, I mean, it's very, very low bandwidth. So mm-hmm. that's that's a huge part of why this is still ongoing. Oh, that's amazing. That's a good point. Yeah. And now we know that Pluto is uh, is cold-hearted. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're looking for love, you should start by looking in the Kuiper Belt. Because my astrobite for this week is called The Secret to a Steady Relationship in the Kuiper Belt by this this guy called Will Saunders. Will Saunders? <laughs> Our very own Will Saunders? Our very own Will Saunders. <laughs> Did you get an interview? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the interview we'll is actually ongoing. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this paper, or this astrobite is based on a paper by Nesvorny and Vorolicki 2018, and it discusses the tumultuous lives of asteroids in the Kuiper Belt, some of which have a special friend. I bet those friends rock. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about delivery, baby. (laughs) Very much so. Um, So... Here, when I say a special friend, I'm talking about binary Kuiper Belt objects. Uh, so there are Kuiper Belt objects where two small bodies are orbiting each other, but they're also um, orbiting the sun. So they're orbiting the center of mass within their broader orbit of the sun. At one point, we thought these were rare objects, but it's turning out more and more that binaries in every size scale of the universe are somewhat common. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And they're just like such a dynamically interesting thing. Like, how does that even happen in the first place? So it's a really cool topic. Um, Absolutely. So although not many of these objects are currently known, uh, the kinds of binaries that remain today tell us crucial clues to understand the environment of the outer solar system millions to billions of years ago, because you know, in the Nice model, when the planets were sort of moving around, a lot of instabilities occurred in many different minor planet populations. And so a lot of these binaries should have potentially been broken apart. And so there are two different populations of these Kuiper Belt objects that are generally discussed in the literature. There are the cold classical Kuiper Belt objects and the hot Kuiper Belt objects, where the cold classicals are thought to be some of the more pristine remnants of the early solar system. They haven't really changed much since they were formed, effectively. Um, And the hot Kuiper Belt objects were pushed to these more dynamically excited orbits through interactions with Neptune. So the terms hot and cold can mean very, very different things, whether you're talking about plasma physics or you're talking about polarization fields or here Mm -hmm. you're talking about taxonomy of small bodies. So just to clarify, here they refer to not temperature, but the potential range of orbits that you see for these particular subset of bodies? Yeah, so you can sort of think of it as like the scale height is larger for these hot Kuiper Belt objects because they are on more, they, they've had more energy injected into their orbits that allows them to be excited to higher inclinations. Got it. We'll add it to the list of astronomers' terms that are needlessly confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, IAU. <laughs> I don't, That's I don't not think on they, them. they didn't. They would that. never allow that to pass. This entire episode is a subtweet toward the IAU. <laughs> um, so, for this particular paper, something really interesting that the authors noticed is that the cold classicals reside in binaries that tend to be roughly equal sized, whereas the hot Kuiperville objects have more uneven mass ratios in general. And so the authors use n-body simulations to study the environment of the early solar system and figure out what kinds of binaries should survive in the early solar system in its current model of evolution. And they, they compared those expected survival rates in each population and tried to see what kinds of binaries would come out and if you'd expect to see this uneven ratio. I know I wrote this astrobite, but it's been a while. Why don't you remind me what they discovered? <laughs> um, so the student teaches the teacher. 
<laughs> um, so the model ends up actually matching the population of tight and medium binaries very well for the hot Kuiper Belt object population, but it underestimates the survival rate of wide binaries. And there are a couple of possible explanations for this. Maybe the solar system planets actually formed closer to the sun. So the binary planet interactions that were simulated in these models don't actually reflect what happened in the early solar system. So that's a possibility. Um, or maybe the cold classical hyperbole objects aren't as pristine as we think, and they actually have undergone some interactions that weren't accounted for in this model. And then what's the third theory? There is no third theory. Isn't that uh, crazy? There's always a third. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they only had two here. Yeah, but they seem well, like, you know, strong ones, so... It's it's crazy though that we still don't even know for sure where the planets formed or how they evolved over time, but it's also in line with a lot of the other research we presented here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's hard to it's hard to know what happened millions of years ago, billions of years ago from just looking at what exists now, you know. But But it's all but, we got. Yeah. Minor planets teach you a lot about the fossils of the solar system. <laughs> but they still have some major problems. Major problems. <laughs> got that right. <laughs> All right. So I think it's about time for the Astro Sound Astro Soundscape of the Space Fortnite bi weekly space sound. For your ears. Yeah. <laughs> for your ears. <laughs> for your ears. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so uh, we're just going to play the space sound now, and then can you guys just guess what you think it's going to be? beautifully aggressive yes very aggressive <laughs> but it's it's a real sound well, what do you think it is uh sonar sonar that's a good guess i'm actually trying to remember what sonar is <laughs> it's just like sound what what is it's sonar? just like using using sound to locate something oh yes it's not sonar. Like, but they, that sounds like what you would hear in a movie, go, in, in like a in the bridge of a of a navy ship or a submarine or something, as they're you know locating their environment. Yeah. Huh. I'm gonna go out on a limb, and I'm gonna say it's sonified radio emission from a galaxy. No, I actually went. I went really thematic with this one. So this one's actually the tracks left by the November 2000 Leonids shower. Uh, so it's like a meteor shower, and as these meteors pass through the atmosphere, they leave behind ionized particles, and wow. they reflect high-frequency radio signals from Earth, um, and the the signals end up being Doppler shifted because of winds in the upper atmosphere, and they actually sound like this. So, That's awesome. Yeah, you can actually hear the trails of the comets, or meteors. So you're saying they, they are radio signals? Kind of, yes. Oh, halfway. It's like <laughs> Doppler shifted radio signals. I think you're both yeah, kind cool. of right, because it's also sort of like reflecting signals off of the meteors, you know? Yeah. It's like sonar. Nice. We get partial credit. <laughs> yeah. In total, you get 100% if you each get 50%, right? Nice. That's failing. <laughs> <laughs> Not in grad school. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Melina, for that sound. Yeah, no problem. I thought it would be nice to actually have like 
a different type of minor planet since there are so, so many taxonomic categories that you probably wouldn't have been able to guess even if I gave you that hint. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. So I guess it's a good time for our one sentence summaries. Alex, kick us off. Tomba Regio really is the heart of Pluto, pumping nitrogen into circulation around the minor planet and adding a bit of blush to its surface. Mm-hmm. I like that. <laughs> so sweet. Milena, what about yours? Although only tens of Kuiper Belt binaries are known, the uneven size ratio distribution and the different Kuiper Belt subpopulations hold tantalizing clues about what mechanisms were at play in the early solar system. And, Will, what's your one-sentence summary? I'm going to throw this one back to Tim. This just highlights how important the Trojans are to our understanding of the solar system. So this is a one part of a larger puzzle that we are unraveling the secrets of these, uh, again, fossils of solar system formation. Well, thanks, Tim. As we were going on recording here, I got nervous that we were not really going to have a lot of time left for discussion. But I think we do have a few more minutes uh, to pull together some of these thoughts and discuss minor planets, other things in the in the solar system. So what would you say are the major problems right now? <laughs> I think they're... So one that comes immediately to mind for me is something called the Trojan Color Conundrum, where... Like, the the Trojan asteroids are systematically redder than the Jovian Trojan asteroids, actually, whereas they're thought to have come from the same place. And so that seems weird, because you would expect them to be the same color if they came from the same reservoir. And so that's sort of like a puzzle that doesn't quite make sense in our current understanding of the solar system. And I think that's like the first thing that I would think of, but I'm sure there are plenty of other interesting conundrums out there. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that I have any off the top of my head. <laughs> I'm kind of shocked that I do. <laughs> so, Will, do you have any? Uh, I would say one of the big open questions and exciting possibilities is uh, tenuous surface atmospheres hmm. or volatiles uh, coming off of, say, asteroids, um, centaurs, trans-Neptunian objects, things like that. So far, there are no known very small objects with atmospheres. Mm -hmm. A few minor planets with atmospheres, but nothing small that has like a tenuous atmosphere or even something like the moon with what's called the surface-bound exosphere, which just has kind of like a few particles. And I think that's that's something that people are curious about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. While you were mentioning this, because it sort of ties into like the Pluto system and what we were talking about before, um, something else that came to mind is that actually the Pluto system is super crazy. If you look at the dynamics, it's like everything mm. is spinning at different speeds and the, there are these resonances and it's just like so much is happening. And I don't think anyone understands how pl- the Pluto system got to be what it is. Um, so that's Absolutely. another really cool, interesting question that remains unanswered right now. Correct me if I'm wrong, is, isn't it also maybe an open question why the Earth has such a large moon relative to the size of the planet, whereas other planets in our solar system don't? It is an interesting question. And in fact, there has been, oh, which we've talked about on the show, there has been some more and more research into disproving the giant impact hypothesis 
and putting more stock in the multiple impact hypothesis. If you recall, we discussed that. But there's actually a new um, theory on this. This is getting a little bit out of the out of the you know topic here, but there's a theory that like the Earth was struck by a a large medium sized, not necessarily large sized object when it was still somewhat molten and created this sort of like fluid bag instead of like pieces of rock. And there's a whole new way of thinking about what the Earth would have looked like as it was kind of falling apart like that. Maybe we could cover that astrobite sometime soon. Yeah, that sounds great. That's super interesting. Yeah, it's, it's very bizarre. It's a whole new way of thinking about it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's just sort of like a general question also that is very relevant to exoplanets, which is, you know, are collisionally created moons very common? Seems like most of the moons that we know of in our solar system probably formed in disks, but is that the norm? Right. Um, I don't think we really have enough evidence to say right now, but I think that's also an interesting question. Like, why does the Earth seem to have this potentially collisional moon, whereas I don't think any of the other planets that we know of do? As large. Yes. Plenty of small moons have interesting collisional dynamic history, mm, but not yeah. uh, not nearly as large as a, as a proportion of the host planet's mm-hmm. uh, mass. Okay, quick take before we finish here. Uh, asteroid mining is it going to happen or not (laughs) it just seems so impractical you have to use so much energy to get there in the first place but maybe if you found like a really big asteroid there's some that are like hundreds of kilometers Mm -hmm. maybe i think with the number of companies right now that are getting invested in space entrepreneurial enterprises i think it's it's something that will be attempted i don't know if it's something that will become commonplace but i think people will make efforts toward Mm -hmm. it it's kind of like you know shooting a car into space it's like flashy so people like it so but should you (laughs) (laughs) some people like it (laughs) before we have a chance to debate that we're going to conclude episode 15 of astro sound bites minor planets major problems If you'd like to read the three astrobytes we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. A huge thanks to Tim Holt, who you will be hearing from again in a future Beyond episode. If you want to hear all of our episodes, you know where to find them. It's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can also send us an email to astrosoundbytes at gmail.com. Give us some feedback. We love hearing from our listeners. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.